0: Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie and I'm Abby. If you're new to the show, welcome. Abby and I have been friends since the day she was born. We both love drinking coffee and talking about our favorite horror movies together. You can find our episodes, blog posts, merch, and more by going over to www.goodmorningnancy.com. We work really hard on these episodes and do a lot of research. So show us how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com goodmorningnancy. Remember, that's morning with an O-U. Today, we'll be discussing Universal's 1935 film, The Bride of Frankenstein, (laughs) (laughs) the sequel to Universal's Frankenstein, which came out four years earlier. If you'd like to hear our discussion on that film before we start, stop this episode and go back to episode 21. We'll wait. Still here? Okay, great. So let's get started. Yeah. So The Bride of Frankenstein was written by William Hurlbert. And John L. Balderston.
1: Wow. Yes. Very English sounding. (laughs) (laughs) Balderston.
0: I'm going over to the Balderstons this weekend. (laughs) to ride on the yacht.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it was written
0: by those two gentlemen. And it was adapted from the second half of Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. The film was directed by James Whale, who also directed Frankenstein. And it stars Elsa Lanchester, Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, Una O'Connor, Valerie Hobson, who replaced May Clark, who was in the first Frankenstein, and Ernest Thesiger. So Universal announced its plans to make a sequel during the early previews of 1931's Frankenstein, but a sequel wouldn't come to light for another four years. And one of the reasons was because James Whale, at first, didn't want to return to direct the sequel. He was saying how he felt like everything he needed to say about Frankenstein and the monster was already done in his first movie. Of course, this was something that Carl Limley Jr. would not let happen, especially after the success of The Invisible Man, which was Whale's film that came right after Frankenstein. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was all still during the Great Depression. So understandably, Lemley didn't want to take a risk with another director. So he was able to convince Whale to direct The Bride of Frankenstein by letting him direct One More River, which is an English drama. And I guess Whale really wanted to to direct that. So he let him do that. Nice. Another reason was because no one could seem to get the script just right. (laughs) The first draft was called the New Adventures of Frankenstein. Oh, dash the monster lives! Exclamation point. Hmm. So just the title alone kind of gives you an idea of probably what it was written like. <laughs> so it was obviously rejected without comment in, ni- in nineteen thirty-two. <laughs> picturing Frankenstein in like an Indiana Jones costume, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a fancy hat and a whip. Whoops, a satchel. So the second draft was called The Return of Frankenstein, and the title retained until filming began. The script passed its review, but James Whale, who was then, he was contracted to direct at that time, complained that it stinks to heaven, and he (laughs) demanded a rewrite. Wow. Yeah, he was like, this sucks. I am not doing this film. So two new writers were assigned to the project. But Whale felt that their script was unsatisfactory as well. Wow. So no script there, either. Frickin' picky Pete over here. You know, I think he thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. True, true. Finally, Whale helped hire John L. Balderston to write the script. Now, Balderston's script included the prologue of the film, which Abby, you're going to mention in the plot summary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also the first to bring The Bride into the script as a character. Whale loved that Balderston added in The Bride and the prologue, but he still thought the script needed some TLC, so he then hired William Hurlburt to kind of touch it up a bit. Shooting began on January 2nd, 1935, with a projected budget of $300,000, which is... Whoa. million as of 2018. Holy crap! And an estimated 36 day shooting schedule. However, Whale halted the project for 10 days because he wanted actor O.P. Hedgie to play the hermit character. (laughs) <laughs> this cost Universal a hef- hefty sum of $1.70 million in today's money. What? Whale also had to do extensive reshoots and re editing up until just a few days before releasing the film to the public. Oh my God. Yeah. The film premiered on April 19th, 1935, and made $28 million in today's money. Whoa. So, so
1: January to April? Yep. That's nuts. those poor actors oh my god
0: (laughs) oh my god yeah so he cracked a whip and they got moving and that film was released oh but they earned 28 million dollars in today's money so they earned it all back and then some well, that's good. Yeah, so the film received positive reviews, even though people looked down on it for being another horror film. And it would kind of get reviews like, quote, good entertainment of its kind. <laughs> you know, like it's good for a horror movie. Wow. Yeah. One of the best contemporary descriptions of this film comes from Guillermo del Toro. And this is from him uh, speaking in at a October 2012 screening of the film in Los Angeles. Del Toro said, if the first one was about the essential loneliness of man, a Miltonian episode about being thrust into a world that you didn't create and don't understand, then the second one is the absolute compulsion for company, the need not to be alone. The films we love are emotional biographies and partial prophecies of who we are and who we can be. The moment I discovered the creature, I discovered in him a twin soul. I discovered a kindred spirit. So nowadays, The Bride of Frankenstein is considered the best film in the Frankenstein franchise with Channel4.com saying it's a must for anyone with even a passing interest in horror Okay, so with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, So the movie opens actually with Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, sitting in the drawing room with her husband and family friend, Lord Byron, (laughs) and they're discussing Mary's latest work, which was Frankenstein, and she actually tells them that there is more to the story, and then we delve into the creation of another monster, the Bride of Frankenstein. So we pick up where we left off in the last film as the citizens of the town watch the rest of the windmill burn, and they believe that the monster is still dead inside. However, the parents of Maria, the little girl that we talk about in the, in the other episode uh, who drowned, they discover that he is indeed still alive, and they find him swimming around like in a body of water beneath the mill, and the monster actually kills both of them. In the meantime, Henry's body is found and it's returned to Elizabeth, which we saw at the end of the last film. Uh, And he swears to her that, you know, he's through creating these monsters and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And all he wants to do is get married and like go on their honeymoon and just be done. Uh, However, there's a new character that's introduced, Dr. Pretorius, and he worked with Henry during his time at the university, and he wants to enlist his help in the creation of a second monster, a bride for the original monster. So Pretorius shows Henry his collection of homunculi, which he'd organically grown in his lab, and they're like... These little tiny humans that he keeps in bell jars. And it's really creepy and weird.
0: And they're like one arc, kind of. Yeah. They're, they they don't have a soul, really. Yeah,
1: there's like a ballerina, there's a king and a queen, and like a couple other different ones. So Pretorius tells Henry that he'll grow the brain for the new monster. And with Henry's help, he'll piece together a brand new one. So although Elizabeth is very much against the idea and she wants Pretorius to leave Henry alone because, you know, he's getting over, she calls him sick and stuff like that because it was a pretty stressful event, you know, that went down in the last film. So Henry actually decides to stay and finish working with Dr. Pretorius to create this new monster. Meanwhile, the original monster escapes the mill and he's been having adventures of his own and um he meets a blind man who teaches him how to communicate and he introduces him to you know like music and alcohol and cigars he's kind of like the cool uncle you know <laughs> that your parents try to keep you away from <laughs> but now the monster is able to talk and he can communicate his feelings and stuff so when he meets Dr. Pretorius He learns that the doctor plans to make another monster for him. And, you know, he calls it a friend and stuff like that. So he is pretty thrilled about it. And, you know, he wants him to get working on it right away. So the bride is then brought to life. But even she is frightened of the monster and wants nothing to do with him. And it's so heartbreaking. Because you realize that the monster is like, well, that was my last hope. I don't belong anywhere in this world. So they are all gathered together in this laboratory. Dr. Pretorius, Henry is there, the two monsters. And then Elizabeth, Henry's fiancé, shows up, you know, begging him to leave. And so the monster throws Henry and Elizabeth out and says, basically, go live your life. And he says, you know, we belong dead. And he throws a switch in the lab, and the lab explodes, and they all die. Dr. Pretorius and, you know, his assistant
0: and the two monsters are destroyed. Yeah, The end. That, to some people, was of the best Frankenstein film. That was soul-crushing. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> it ends maybe kind of happy for Henry and Elizabeth, but I mean... even at the end, they're like, oh, dang, that really sucked for all of us. Yeah. So nobody really is happy at the end of that. Yeah, like, what a mess. Definitely a mess. It's like Jurassic Park. Yeah, where everyone's kind of smiling, but it's like weak smiles. Yes. That was traumatic as F.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's awful.
0: Okay, so does it pass the Bechtel test? Surprisingly? Yes. Yay! It passes towards the end when Minnie, who is Elizabeth's uh, maid, I guess? I don't know. Minnie tells Elizabeth that she's worried about leaving her alone in her room. And the woman who plays Minnie, her name is Una (laughs) O'Connor. And she was previously in James Whale's The Invisible Man. And she screams the entire time in both films. Yeah. And, you know... It's funnier in The Invisible Man than it is in this. I feel like for me. Yeah,
1: it's really out of context here. Not out of context, but like not necessary.
0: No. And, you know, we might get crucified for this because a lot of people do really like the humor in this. And Mm -hmm. I think the humor is good. I think it's 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 fine. But Minnie is so much to me. I just like, don't stop screaming, lady. Yes. But that's just me. So it's not just you, it's me too. Okay, good. Well <laughs> she's very funny. I just think that it happens too much in this. Yes. Personally. But, so, so that's her. <laughs> that's <laughs> Una O'Connor. Yeah. Um, I also want to add that the credits for Frankenstein said that the film was inspired by a novel by Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. Ugh. Right? And we yeah. were, like, angry about that. Yeah. But did you notice that Bride improves this billing uh, and they call her Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley? Yeah. And I was like,
1: yes! Yep. Like, in that prologue scene... It's very modern, like it's it's kind of out of place because obviously this was in 1930s, you know, when this movie was made.
0: 1935, yeah. Yeah.
1: And like, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of equality yet. Like there was some, but I feel like it was very pro-women, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Which
0: was cool to see. Well, yes, yes. You know what? We're going to get into this a little bit later, too. Because I think that this mirrors something else. Yeah. So, okay. So, the monster talks in this one. Almost all of the advertising for this film promised a talking monster. (laughs) From an artistic perspective, Karloff objected to having the monster speak in the sequel. He believed that it harmed the character more than helped him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he... I guess he was kind of wrong, though. Because critics, however... Really praised like the outrageousness of it all, and yeah. like the, the macabre like humor of the of the monster talking, saying like "friend, good," you know yeah. that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like people actually kind of liked that, and so. That's another thing, too. Like, critics were okay with a lot of stuff in this. Yeah. And censors were, like, really okay with a lot of stuff in this. Mm So um, that brings us to our next topic. Yeah. Censors. Yeah. (laughs) Get the boring stuff out of the way. (laughs) So censors in other countries took issue with a scene in which the monster looks lovingly upon the body of his unanimated mate. Yikes. Fearing that the scene could be interpreted as an endorsement for necrophilia. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) Are you kidding me?
0: They were like, that monster is going to bang those bones. Oh, my.
1: No, no. New meaning to jumping someone's bones. (laughs) Yikes oh no yeah so that obviously doesn't i mean people were probably like well i wasn't going to but now that you've given me the idea (laughs) we do not endorse necrophilia on our show (laughs) p.s don't do it
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is a ticket straight to hell but listen (laughs) so that was overseas right so that was like you know british people i'm guessing well you know
1: i do have to say though mary shelley did have sex on her mom's grave so there is that
0: she is my hero (laughs) (laughs) oh my god Oh, oh man! God. Okay, so listen, James Whale was actually able to get away with a lot of really controversial stuff. I know I was surprised. Yes, you know why? It's because he like did like suggestive imagery. So like when the monster is going through the town, like after he uh, like es- es- escapes like the mill mm-hmm. and uh, he's like terrorizing everybody, he kills like f- three or four people yeah. in that scene. Yeah, but you don't see it happen. Unlike when you see him kill Maria mm-hmm. and uh, the other doctor in the first one. He, you kind of, you don't even see the bodies. You kind of see the feet of the bodies behind bushes yeah. yep. or like under blankets. So he was like able to get away with the monster being like a horrific murderer. <laughs> because you can't, like you never see the the deaths happen and you never see the actual bodies. Yeah. He also used humor. So, yeah, so, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot. You guys notice when you watch this film, hopefully you've already seen it, there's a lot of different scenes where characters talk about really controversial stuff, but they do it in the form of humor. So it just blew over censors heads yeah like they were just like derp to de derp like didn't get it and so they were like this is fine
1: yeah well it's like the scene with pretorius that's in the lab
0: yes, here we go like holy crap yeah so let's so pretorius was basically made for the controversial humor that mm-hmm. james wheel wanted to fit in so let's talk about this very sinister new character dr pretorius Ugh. i hate his face i know what did i tell you his mouth looked like oh a, a cat's, cat's butthole <laughs> it's like
1: puckered and weird We're 12 oh god but it's true
0: yeah <laughs> so this character does not exist in mary shelley's novel he is a completely new character uh made up for this film so abby what do you think of pretorius
1: i mean i hate him I hate him. Yeah. But I kind of don't because he's... I mean, you have to have the character that's like the devil's advocate, literally, because, you know, he talks about how the Bible is kind of like a joke, I guess, and that like man is the ultimate God and we have the power to create this stuff, which was, you know, pretty ahead of the curve there, like way ahead of the curve. I don't like Pretorius because he... Basically, like, steals Henry away from Elizabeth. And he's like, nom, nom, I need you. And he's, he does it selfishly, but he tries to make it seem like, Henry, you want to do this. It's, you know, it's something that, you know, you've been working for your whole life. And wouldn't it be so great if we made another monster? And he just is like, he's a weasel, you know? Yeah. But he has that great face, that weaselly face, uh, too. Yeah. <sighs> he kind of reminds me of, um, the guy who played General Tarkin from Star Wars? Peter Cushing. Yeah. He reminds me of him. He does.
0: But an Ooh. uglier, like, I don't know. Curly-haired uh, version. Yeah. Yeah. So, allegedly, Whale told Thesiger, who's the actor Ernest Thesiger who plays him, he alleged, allegedly told Thesiger to play Pretorius like a, quote, over-the-top caricature of a bitchy and aging homosexual. <gasps> My. so uh, some modern film scholars have attempted a like gay reading of the film inspired in part by the knowledge that director james whale was openly gay wow he was not closeted to anyone in hollywood everybody knew that he was a gay man wow progressive yes, very very uh, Colin Clive and Ernest Thesiger were both bisexuals. What? Mm hmm. Dang. And, and Thesiger was also known for his like campy impersonations, which was why James Whale wanted him to play Victorious. He knew that he could get somebody to play the character like that. Right. And, you know, uh, some, so some scholars think that this was all done, not done by accident, like that. James Whale hired these people because he knew that they could portray the gayness that he wanted on screen. Yeah. Um. But some people like um. There's uh. His name is Vito Russo. Who's a, he's a gay film historian, and he thinks that Thesiger's character, like as Pretorius, he's he's like he's not really gay. He's just more like sissified sort of was that was his word it was sissified and so you know there was a horror movie director named curtis Harrington who was a friend of wales and uh the producer david lewis who was also wales life partner from 1930 to 1952 they actually completely dismissed the notion that wale created the film with any gay angle or hidden gay meanings oh come on well, listen, though, and then I, cause I agree, but I think that James Whale's biographer, uh, James Curtis, said it best. He says that um, people see the homosexual interpretations of Whale's work as sort of like reactionary, and that these readings can be found in the material simply because people try to find them. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I heard that, when his biographer said that, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, yeah. You know, because he was openly gay, I don't know, maybe he felt like he could maybe i don't know and, and i mean frankenstein and the invisible man were successes and i think that he felt like he could just make a fun movie yeah with his friends like he was really good friends with thessager so i think that he felt like he could just make something campy and fun and <laughs> you know and i think that that's where a lot of that comes from that's kind of cool to have that attitude in that time period just be like yeah what the heck yes have you ever seen the film gods and monsters No. Which was about James Whale's, like, the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Some of that film is true. Some of it is not. But he tells Thesiger in the film that uh, Ian McKellen plays James Whale in the Mm -hmm. movie. And he tells the the actor who's playing Thesiger, he is like, you know, like, you guys are a couple of queens and, you know, like uh Frankenstein and and Pretorius probably love each other and stuff. Like he was like that was like the directions that he was giving them. And I mean, maybe the bride was so repulsed because she was a lesbian.
1: You know what I mean? That
0: <laughs> is so true. Yeah. Ugh. She's like, Ugh. no. But Why? seriously. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Okay. So such excitement. Yes. <laughs> Uh, But still, people can't seem to get around the gay themes, right? Like, they're they're obviously there. Um, So the old, like, horror films do have a certain renaissance for gay people. Uh, And this is from author and film historian David Skull in his book, The Monster Show, Mm -hmm. which is a great book. Yeah, he says monster movies are about, like, sexual, sexual repression yeah. among other things, and homosexuality is one form of sexuality that has traditionally, obviously, been repressed. The monster himself can be looked at as a homosexual, uh, trying to find love and friendship and, you know, someone who is just like him. Because, mm-hmm. like, only the blind hermit, like, fails to pass judgment. In this whole yeah, exactly film and and this can be read as well challenging people to revisit their tolerance for those that appear abnormal and not immediately deem them as destructive forces in society. So, do you think that Pretorius's, like, distaste for, like, heterosexual, like, domestic bliss, like, when he talks about, like, when he talks about Elizabeth, basically, he's like, this woman, blah, 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 doesn't (laughs) want her to be in the room, and, like, he's talking about the king and queen that he's created, like, the little homunculi that he's created, he's like, he talks down about it, like, yeah,
1: and he talks about having to, like, separate them, like, the guy has no control because there's a woman there, and, like, He just loses his mind and, like, does anything that he can to escape. Um, But I, uh, Pretorius, to me, like, I feel like if a character in the movie had asked if he was gay, he would be like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs)
0: Like, yeah, I think that that's uh, I think that's James Whale kind of like. I think it is intent- him intentionally, maybe unintentionally. Who knows? Because yeah. he was gay. like Because it was so was-
1: normal for him, and he was maybe trying to normalize it, that he didn't yes. feel like,
0: you know. Like, this shouldn't be controversial. Like, this is just... Right. R- r- this is just this character talking about what he thinks.
1: Well, and also, I wonder if he kind of identified with... I, I don't know how much they knew about Mary Shelley, like, in that time, but mm. I wonder if he like sort of felt familiar with her because she was like she was very open about her sexuality and stuff like that and that's how she was raised and I mean her mom was also like free love all over the place so
0: yeah I think that there is definitely a connection between all of these people Mm -hmm. with like Mary Shelley and her basically her renaissance yeah yeah I don't see why not. I don't see why he wouldn't have, like, some connection with her. And going back to Pretorius, I think he kind of saw himself in Pretorius. He was like, this yes. is what I think. <laughs> I think that he kind of felt like, you know, um, this is how I feel about heterosexual marriage. And I think it's, you know, a waste of time. Or yeah, maybe and I don't that, know.
1: like, it gets in the way of your career goals. Yeah, you know? and
0: so that could easily be, like, him, like, Projecting him, like him, protecting himself through Pretorius. Right. So Gary Morris of BrightLightsFilm.com says the film posits Henry Frankenstein's experiments with resurrecting the dead as above all like a threat to the normal functioning of like a relationship, and that Henry and his fiance Elizabeth are like like the ultimate heterosexual couple. And like Power couple. Yeah, <laughs> and like Pretorius and the monster trying to like tear that apart kind of thing and mm-hmm. like keep that from happening. And uh, even Elizabeth, she states plainly in the film, uh, quote, the figure of death seems to be reaching for you as if it will take you away from me. So it's like almost like death is like the seductiveness of like him like leaving her sort of thing mm-hmm. and his obsession with death and could be interpreted as maybe homosexuality? Yeah, but that's very true. Yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I guess it's just however you want to read the film.
1: Maybe he and because they knew each other back in the day, maybe they were lovers
0: mm. at the university easily. Because he's really uncomfortable with him.
1: Yes. Like yes. like
0: he's an old girlfriend yes. or boyfriend. Mhm.
1: Because the entire time he's talking, Henry's face is, like, squinched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I don't know. Like. Yeah. I feel bad for him, kind of. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, you poor man. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee.
0: We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish.
1: Yum. Oh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just
0: drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today.
1: Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So
0: drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. She's alive! Alive! The bride
1: of Frankenstein.
0: So, Pretorius and Frankenstein together create life, which could be maybe an interpretation for a gay couple. Like, un- I guess, like, when you talk about biology, unnaturally giving life to another human. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's really cool is that they give life to a woman together. Yeah. Yep. Which is bio- biologically, you know, the one that gives birth mm-hmm. to humans. And so, like, it's, it's like, switched. Mm-hmm. So, it's really crazy. Pretorius makes a toast in the film. He says to gods and monsters, and he and Frankenstein are the gods, while the bride and the monster are, of course, the monsters, right? Mm-hmm. So, like you had mentioned earlier, like, he kind of is gets away with bringing up all this Christian imagery and Bible mocking, and much has been made of the film's christian imagery such as the crucifix that was prominent in the hermit's hut the sacramental last supper of bread and wine shared by the monster and the hermit plus he looks like jesus the hermit yeah yeah well and the the monster is saying like the bread good wine good Mm -hmm. like the these things that like are like the body of christ right so crazy i know it oh, is not and then the hunters come <gasps> they're like the the romans oh yeah oh man oh geez they tear herod all apart oh my god <laughs> yeah it is wild um So, like, Pretorius is saying things like, uh, sometimes I wonder if we all be better off as devils and no nonsense about angels. And (laughs) he's like, I can't believe you believe in your Bible stories. Oh, my God. And I, yeah, so I was watching this and I was like... That blows my mind. How the heck did you, were you able to say this? But I think he also says something along the lines of fairy tales and Bible stories. Like, Mm. by putting in fairy tales, he's sort of like eases people into that and
1: Which is weird because you would think people would raise a stink about them being compared or like grouped in the same
0: Right you know. But no. Everyone was like, oh yeah, okay. Like <laughs> uh, literally uh, okay. everyone was like so dumbed down by all of the humor that they didn't get all that imagery, and it passed censors. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty, actually, it's pretty awesome. Well, yeah, <laughs> considering, you know. <laughs> Mocking the divine, and they get away with it in 1935. Good job, guys. <laughs> so, Elsa Lanchester as the bride. Oh. So, in case none of you guys, like, recognized uh, Lanchester, she plays Katie Nana in Disney's Mary Poppins. Yep. She's an older woman in that. The bride's iconic hairstyle was actually Lanchester's real hair, and it was styled around a wired net.
1: Wild. Yes. That's so cool. Uh,
0: she got the idea to do like the cackling and like, <sighs> like hissing noises. <laughs>
1: That's my favorite.
0: I love that part. <laughs> she got that idea from swans when swans get really mad. <gasps> wow. Yeah. So, oh, that's so cute. She actually wasn't too fond of Jack Pierce, who was the makeup artist. <laughs> Apparently, Jack had a huge ego, and he had a rule that he was the one that was supposed to greet you every morning, and he was supposed to greet you first before you could greet him. And she was like, oh, honey, no. What? <laughs> what a weirdo. Yeah, she's actually the only one that I can recall uh, from doing all these because we've talked about jack pierce before a few times mm-hmm. this is the first time i've ever seen anyone be like he's kind of a jerk wow but yeah she was just like you guys hear about this guy jack pierce <laughs> yeah he's he's a jerk
1: <laughs> yes get it <laughs> yeah
0: so abby what do you think it means for us to have a female monster
1: it's i mean it's out of the ordinary especially for the universal monsters Because I can't really think, like, off the top of my head, none really come to mind. It's always men. And I don't know if that speaks to, like, the egos of men and, like, how they internalize their problems and then it, like, turns them into monsters because it gets so blown out of proportion. But, like, she is so different from any of the monsters because she's just, like, she's very autonomous. Like... (sighs) Well, she, she is made for a purpose and that purpose is to, you know, like be the bride of Frankenstein or be the bride of the monster. And then she's like, "Uh, no, I'm not about it. You ugly. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I can do better. (laughs) Well, she's just like, yeah, F this. Just give me a minute. And like, I was literally just
0: born. Yeah. I just figured out what I wanted my hair to look like for the rest of my life. I yeah. just got done putting on all this makeup. I just imagined oh. Pretorius putting on her makeup being like, this is gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> she was also, I think, the first female monster. Because uh, mm-hmm. Dracula's daughter didn't come out until the next year. Which oh, I yeah. think was the second one. Mm-hmm. So she's definitely a staple. And, you know for more w- more reasons than one that's one of the main reasons is Which that is, she was very defiant
1: like it's nuts to me cuz she only got she got less than 10 minutes of screen time like
0: oh less than 5 i yeah, think yeah 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 and she's not in it for very long but sh- her
1: character made such an impact
0: you know yes like there is a huge deep feminist subtext in this film mm-hmm. just because she like you said like she like love can't be manufactured right you know uh pretorius is all about these homunculi and they have one arc right in their story where like king loves queen queen doesn't love king archbishop doesn't like either one Mm -hmm. uh whatever
1: well and he even says like the ballerina gets really boring to watch after a while because she just does the same thing and it's like Well, you created her that way.
0: (laughs) Right. Like he can't do anything else. And that's why he needs Frankenstein Mm -hmm. because Frankenstein is the one who can, like, literally put the soul into the body. And Pretorius can just create, like, these, like, dolls, these moving and living dolls that Mm -hmm. don't know anything. And, like, they, I assume that they wanted her to like him, right? Because that was the goal. And when Frankenstein gets involved, like Pretorius fails because Pretorius can just make, you know, things do what he wants them to do. Right. And Frankenstein doesn't have control over that. He just creates life. Like Well,
1: if you like look at it too, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein creates something like with feeling and like that can function with emotion. But Pretorius was the one who grew the brain for the bride. And she wakes up and she's like, what the hell? That's (laughs)
0: true. He did make the brain. The brain is not from another body. The heart is, though, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think there's. okay. so I was watching this with my sister a while ago and I think it was Pretorius. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Either Pretorius or Frankenstein say the heart is the most complex organ in the body. And her and I looked at each other and she goes, did he mean to say the brain? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So fake science in this whole thing. And I think if we kind of switch it, I think the heart is meant to function like the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think because Frankenstein worked on the heart... You know, the natural part of her body that her heart says, I don't love this monster. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's her brain telling her heart, but fake science in right, this film.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Pseudo science.
0: Yep. So her heart is telling her that I'm not in love with this creature. Yeah. And that's the part of her that's natural. And that's like, no, like you said, like, this is not going to happen. I don't like him. Yeah. So, okay. Am I also reaching... By suggesting, going back to what we talked about earlier, the prologue, am I reaching by suggesting that Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and Pretorius and Frankenstein are the same people, respectively? And Mary Shelley and the monster are the same? Because Mary Shelley is played by the same actress who plays the bride. Mm-hmm. Is it like a metaphor for like her deep darkness that maybe these two men thought that they helped create because they were with her when she wrote it and they've like they're they're always like flanking her too in that prologue like they're always like talking about her beauty and like treating her like she's a baby and like when she pricks her finger like they both run over to her and they're like oh my
1: god are you okay? I don't think it's reaching I think it's just like a parallel universe kind of. That, and she's like, let me tell y'all a story. And she, like, sits him down and she's like, this is what's going on. But it was her way of being like, I am a grown woman and, like, I can make my own choices and I don't need you to tell me that my work was great because I already know that it's great. Like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, and, like, Byron is very, like, flamboyant and he kind of is sexually aggressive. <laughs> he
1: is. and very the much tongue like, roll. I can't get over it mm. all the time with a... Rah. And I'm like, what is this? Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's very much like Pretorius. And then Percy, who is portrayed as the very successful but quiet one, Mm -hmm. is very much like Henry Frankenstein. And yeah, I just feel like they are like, that's like a mirror image. Yeah. I think of the prologue and the ending is is of them, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of neat.
1: I think it's interesting, though, that they did use Elsa for both characters,
0: I yeah. think that is so cool. James Whale wanted that. He was like, there is no way. And this was another thing that kept the movie from being produced. He was like, if Elsa Lan- Lanchester does not play both Mary and the bride, I'm going to get real mad. <laughs> and Universal was like, okay, God. So, <laughs> geez. so he wanted her. That was very intentional. He wanted her to be the same person and I think that was a metaphor for like her darkness of being like flanked by these guys and Mm -hmm. like being made to think like cause like she freaking wrote Frankenstein and it said Mrs. Percy B. Shelley Yeah, like nothing was just her everything had to do with like there was always a man standing behind her making sure she was doing everything right Mm -hmm. or a man on either side of her making sure she's doing everything right and that's what's happening with the bride like there's a man on either side of her that's like like you better love him
1: she also says to them in the beginning like (laughs) not that they read the story wrong but maybe that it was like misinterpreted a little bit too and she was like no let me tell you what it actually means
0: like yeah they thought for sure they knew what her story was about and you're right she was like you're totally wrong yeah yeah so yeah they were trying to mansplain her own story to her (laughs) So crazy. She will not have it. I just think it's kind of great that she was made for, as a companion. Like so many women, I think, feel like we exist because we're supposed to get married and we're supposed to be married to these particular people that Mm -hmm. our parents, Henry and (laughs) Pretorius, think that we should marry or be with. And you, she kind of, like you said, like she rebels against the monster She rebels against her parents, Mm -hmm. and she ends up being killed because of it. Yeah. And you kind of feel bad for the monster, but you kind of feel bad for her because she's not given a chance. Yeah, she has
1: zero choice ever because the monster is just like, well, I'm going to make our minds up for us, and uh, we're going to explode and not exist anymore because we're not meant to. And it's like, what?
0: What? Yeah, like, you're supposed to feel bad for the monster, but I feel bad for her because she she makes a choice that doesn't help anybody except herself, and mm. toxic masculinity gets involved and... <laughs> Ruins the party again. Yep. Shout out to My Favorite Murder. Yeah, seriously. Um, and she gets murdered. <laughs> yeah. It freaking sucks. It does suck, yeah, and it's sad. And, you know, like... The monster being sad about her not liking him is very emotional and I do tear up every time because you he was friend zoned. I mean he kept calling her friend. He's like friend, (laughs) friend, and she's like, okay, but that's it. If you don't want
1: me to be your friend, then you need to be clear about it, monster. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just got really hyphy there. have really strong feelings about the friend zone, which doesn't actually exist.
0: (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) that was good. (laughs) Final thoughts. Rob Nixon of TCM.com said, The Bride of Frankenstein shines as one of the most inventive, atmospheric, and slightly humorous movies in the Universal series. More notable is how well it stands up to some of the best films of the decade, bringing even those critics who looked down on the horror genre to begrudgingly admit its merits. So, Abby, why, of all horror movies, do you think that critics, who don't like horror, look up to this film particularly?
1: Well, we have mentioned it uh, before when we've talked about the Universal Monsters, and like I've said things like, you know, the monsters have a lot of human qualities and that's why people identify with them so much. But I think critics maybe like this movie so much because it doesn't have like a storybook ending and it doesn't end like a fairy tale. Like the monsters don't fall in love and like get married and have kids. They're destroyed. And the doctor who came up with the idea is destroyed along with it. And, you know, Henry he swears that he's never going to do it again and like runs away and you never hear from him ever again after that. So I think it's kind of that like it's it's kind of that thing where if it sounds too good to be true it probably is. So you know the monster got his hopes up and he's like oh yes I'm finally going to have somebody like me and I'm going to have a friend and they're going to love me and she's created and absolutely hates him you know. So he's like well Frick, I guess this isn't going to work. Might as well die. (laughs) So it's a very tragic ending. It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet, where, like, the lovers don't end up together. They both die.
0: And there is kind of a moral to the story. Yeah, don't play God. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, even the monster, like don't get involved in something that's manufactured. Like, like we said earlier, like love cannot be manufactured. Right.
1: It has to happen naturally.
0: Yes. And, you know, and I think I think that's great. And I think that one of the biggest reasons why is because there is a very gr- there's a lovely mix of humor and horror. Mm-hmm. And I think. And I think that nobody knew they wanted that until this came out. Yeah, and that happens all the time now, right? So like, Scream is like a very modern example.
1: Hmm. Um, Insidious kind of uses that. Like yeah, humor the to deflect. Yes, you know?
0: absolutely. Like very modern. I mean, oh, Get Out is another yeah. great example. Like where you use humor and horror together, and they are friends. Mm-hmm. and friends th- friend, <laughs> exactly perfect yeah and I think that that was something that was new that had never been done before and I think that that's why critics are like you can't this is so great because this is the beginning of, of horror comedy of horror comedy <laughs> and it uh, will never go away like horror rom coms basically <laughs> yeah it's, seriously it's also about people who are repressed you can come from any sort of outsider position and you can definitely connect with this film yeah no matter who you are or what you look like like all of us feel like the monster or the bride or Pretorius or yeah. Frankenstein in this film
1: I think also everybody ends up in a position similar to this at some point in life like yeah. you they talk about it in Nightmares in the Red White and Blue one of the horror directors says like you know you identify with the monster because you're like this skinny like nerdy kid and you know you have your dream girl and she's absolutely repulsed by you and nothing that you do is right and or even if you find someone who is in your circle who is similar to you. Because that's the thing. That's they the don't, bride. Yeah. She's in
0: his circle. Yeah. They, and they don't even have to she... like you either. Yes, because she is a monster just like him, and even she rejects him. So yeah. I think that's a good point. Being rejected by your own tribe yeah. is a rough stab to the heart. Absolutely, yeah. and I think I think that's a a big reason why critics really like this. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Good Morning Nancy. We couldn't be here without you. Follow us on Twitter at Good Morning Nan facebook at good morning nancy and instagram at good morning nancy podcast again if you would like to help support the show visit patreon.com slash good morning nancy love you guys so much and thank you for listening as always bye